Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello, people of the Take On Board community, and welcome to this special episode of Take On Board, which was designed to celebrate our 200th episode. I can't quite believe we've got to 200 episodes, but there it is. Now, after recording... I realised that our 200th episode is to be released on May 17th, and that's also Ida Hobbit, the International Day Against LGBTQIA Discrimination. Note, we weren't aware of this when we recorded the discussion, so I'm putting this introduction in to give some background about Ida Hobbit Day, as it would be a missed opportunity to release this discussion on that day without recognising it in some way. So, on May 17, we acknowledge Ida Hobbit Day as a day for the LGBTQIA communities, indeed all of us, to go rainbow and to stand up against discrimination. In fact, it's probably more important for those of us that maybe are not from the LGBTQIA communities to stand up against discrimination. So whether you're part of that community or if you're an ally, Today, we stand together. Why is Ida Hobbit on May 17th? This date commemorates the anniversary the World Health Organisation removed homosexuality from the International Classification of Diseases in 1990. 1990. Prior to this, homosexuality was classified globally as a mental illness. That's only 33 short years ago. It's kind of unbelievable that that's the case. And as recently as 1997, being gay was illegal in some parts of Australia. And until just five years ago, same-sex marriage was not recognised in our country. Whilst we've certainly come a long way in the advancements of LGBTQIA plus equity, the unfortunate reality is that these milestones are very recent in our experience. So with this in mind, Ida Hobbit has two main purposes. Firstly, today... May 17th is an opportunity to celebrate the pride and allyship of the people who have worked to build equality around the world. Secondly, it's to raise awareness of the discrimination LGBTQIA plus people still face today. Australia-wide research conducted by La Trobe University highlights the prevalence of discrimination still occurring around our country. Two in three LGBTQIA plus youth experience harassment or abuse due to their identity. That's 66% of our young people. But discrimination of this kind is not just contained to the classroom. A study of almost 7,000 LGBTQIA plus people of all ages in Australia found that one in three people have experienced verbal abuse in the past 12 months because of their identity. This includes insults, humiliation and threats just for being who they are. 
it's worth repeating again. One third of LGBTQIA plus people have experienced verbal abuse in the last 12 months. When it comes to creating a world where everyone is safe to be themselves, there's still work for us to do. Here at Take On Board, we strive to create a place where all our people belong and to provide the resources and the support to ensure that boardrooms and our community is diverse and inclusive. The discussion I have with Red today is part of that. So today, I acknowledge Ida Hobbit as part of this commitment to creating a place where everyone belongs. Of course, creating a place where everyone belongs takes more than a single day. So I'm going to suggest some actions you might take. Firstly, I encourage you to acknowledge that there is still more work for us to do in creating a space where LGBTQIA plus people belong. This is an ongoing process and here at Take On Board, we are committed to creating a safe and inclusive space for everyone and I encourage you and your organisations to also make that commitment. Secondly, we celebrate the rich diversity of LGBTQIA plus people within our Take On Board community and for you within your boardrooms and organisations and we learn from their stories and experiences. And again, today, you'll get to learn some of that, hearing from Red in today's episode. Thirdly, take action to build LGBTQIA plus inclusion into your work every day. This might include engaging in LGBTQIA plus inclusion training. It might be launching an inclusion strategy. It might be making a donation to Ida Hobbit in support of LGBTQIA plus youth. Indeed, if I can ask one action, it's that we all listen with an open heart and mind to the LGBTQIA plus people who are sharing their stories with us today and beyond. Note that Ida Hobbit is coordinated by Minus 18, Australia's charity for LGBTQIA plus people across the country. Red and I refer to this in the conversation today. And you can find out more about Minus 18 and about Ida Hobbit at the Ida Hobbit website, which we'll link in the show notes. Note, this introduction was taken from one of the resources that they have on their website about supporting events, a great resource. And I thank them for providing this information. Check it out, Minus 18 and idahobbit.org.au. There's lots for us all to learn. Thank you for joining me in recognising Ida Hobbit. Together, we can build a world without discrimination, today and every day of the year. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Red Dernley about breaking the binary in the boardroom, improving intersectional inclusion and gender equity. Before we start that discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today. For me, I am on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I acknowledge their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. I support the Uluru Statement from the heart, and I encourage others in the Take On Board community to do the same. Now, let me introduce Red. Red is the Deputy Chair of WIRE the chair of Speak Australia and the former chair of Be Slavery Free. Red is an experienced executive and non-executive leader in the for-purpose sector. 
They are the CEO of Birth for Humankind and founder and principal consultant of Influence Global, a social change consultancy. With an activist heart and a self-confessed governance nerd's head, something we love here, they are passionate about enabling systemic change by applying intersectional feminist principles across organisational culture, governance and operations. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Red. Thank you, Helia. It's lovely to be here. Oh, so Red and I have been talking about doing this for ages. And I should say, Red, this is the Take On Board podcast's 200th episode. Congratulations. Oh, it kind of does my head in, 200th. So we're coming up to our fourth birthday and... The 100th episode for Take On Board was, I actually think it was a rerun, although it might have been the first time I'd done it, was an interview with an Aboriginal woman, Amber, about acknowledgement of country and the importance of it. And for the 200th episode, I was thinking, I want to do something special and in line with what we do. And this conversation with you was the first thing that came to mind, because breaking the binary in the boardroom is yet another angle on inclusion. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Likewise. Well, I mean, and congratulations on 200 episodes because it's a huge achievement and a wonderful resource that you provide and so inclusive and open and uh, welcoming. So yeah, it's fabulous for us all in all different boards and different walks of life. Yay. So whilst I'm super keen to talk about breaking the binary in the boardroom, as always, we need to dig a little bit deeper about you first. So tell me, what was Young Red like? And when did you get your first inkling that you might end up doing what you are doing today? Goodness. So, well, Young Red grew up in suburban North London um, in the 80s and in probably what was what was considered a reasonably progressive values at the time. But in reality, as was the education system then and somewhat still is, I had a very limited white-centric colonial view of the world. But I had something and I probably couldn't articulate it back then but was desperate to find my own place in the world and keen to explore outside the bubble that I'd grown up in. Probably my earliest kind of socio-political memories was at that time Thatcher's Britain and when Margaret Thatcher resigned I was probably about nine or ten and there were other things globally in the world like famines in Ethiopia that really shaped my understanding of injustice in the world although it flawed and misguided understanding without the words to put to it but probably my sense of awareness that not everyone had what I had or experienced what I did. And I think whilst I was largely content and happy, I grew up as a teenager and as a young adult, I sort of struggled feeling, not understanding who I was or um, where I fit in. And only much later in life to come to realise that's because I had been raised in the wrong gender and was still trying and failing to adhere to those gender norms. And I think with hindsight, a lot of the angst that comes from that spurred me on in activism and throwing in my passions behind other social justice causes. And that led to where I am today. I have absolutely no idea when I first thought I might be on board. So I think sometimes I still think I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I don't know how I got here, but my first role in the not-for-profit or for-purpose sector was an internship for the successor to the anti-apartheid movement, working on pro-democracy campaigning. And I didn't think of myself as an advocate before then, but 
being adjacent to politics and looking for opportunities to influence change, small steps to big outcomes. Um, I think I really enjoyed how purposeful that was. And so that set me on a career trajectory through the not-for-profit sector into more leadership and governance roles. Oh, God, there's already so much I want to pick up on in there. I think we'll get a chance to pick up on some of that as we have the conversation. So I'm going to go there because Red... (laughs) I know from us, we could end up down many different alleyways. So I'm going to resist the urge to go down an alleyway so soon, even though I'm tempted. So with that context about you and where you've come from in this, today we're talking about breaking the binary in the boardroom and improving intersectional inclusion and gender equity. Where should we begin? I think to begin, I need to be clear about what I mean when I say breaking down the binary because for me I mean all binaries all harmful thinking that is caused by simplifying and categorizing things as opposites or alternatives so men women black white gay straight the incorrect either or thinking that puts people in experiences on a spectrum from one end to another that's largely been constructed from a white colonial and patriarchal gaze and I truly believe that we can't have equality whilst binaries still exist or dominate. It automatically excludes a range of diverse experiences. And and we know if you build structures and systems or workplaces to improve experiences for the most marginalised, you improve it for everyone. So that's what I'm working towards within my work and boardroom activism. I am also non-binary. So yes, I can speak to my lived experience as a queer, gender diverse person who has been harmed by being pigeonholed into these binary boxes. And I still absolutely believe that boards and businesses need to take targeted action to improve trans and gender diverse inclusion and participation. That absolutely must happen. But they will continue to fail the people who are most systemically marginalised if we don't take an intersectional approach to that work. So we need to be looking at breaking down all binaries in order to do that. So that's probably where I'd start. And as you said, I could go on for a long time. (laughs) So our first conversation came about because we were introduced by a mutual connection and I can't remember exactly what the words were, but essentially it was you wanted to have a chat to me to talk about Take On Board Accelerator, which I have since its inception run as a women's program. And you were like, well, I want to have a chat to you about inclusion and how inclusive that program is going to be for me, as in you, which was great. I kind of got that and went, oh my God, what an awesome conversation. That is an excellent thing to raise because I have always thought about, I want to promote, you know, it's about gender equity and I want to promote women in the boardroom. I think my thinking started with, you know, 50-50 and then it's like, oh, there's no binary. I don't think we can say 50-50. There needs to be some space in the middle. So being able to have a conversation with you, for me, was actually super helpful. But I'm wondering, what were you looking for from me or from others? What do you look for when you are looking for signals that a space is inclusive or could be inclusive? Such a good question because... And they say that you make a first impression in seven seconds. Oh, 
something along those lines I've heard before. And I think it's why conversations get stuck talking about pronouns and toilets in spaces because they are your first impressions, right? And they're absolutely important. The language is so important. It's how we understand each other. I mean, it can be incredibly supportive. It can also be weaponized and or unintentionally harmful more frequently. And so I think the language of how organizations present themselves is very important. It's an important part of allyship, but it's only the entry point. It's not the destination. So for using that your example of the board accelerator talking about being a women's space, but then I knew through other people who'd gone through it that it probably was more inclusive than the language had said. And so I think what you're looking for is those indicators initially that this is a safer space and it's a space that is trying to be more inclusive. Now, I think this is where my experience may differ somewhat to other experiences in that my professional work supported me in being more comfortable talking about my personal experience as a non-binary genderqueer person. More often we hear the story of people being very out in their personal lives and, and not at work because it isn't a safe space. Mine was a slower transition. And if I give an example of why or where I'm on the board at the moment, I joined that board around three years ago and came to it through professional channels, having worked in, in social justice sector, not-for-profit leadership, gender equity and LGBTIQA plus related sectors. WIRE was a nearly 40-year-old women's organisation that had recently changed its constitution to be inclusive of trans, non-binary and gender diverse people. And that is a significant indicator that you're not just saying it in words they're looking at the foundational governing documents and being within an organization that was so transparent in its belief in intersectional and trans inclusionary approaches to achieving gender equity encouraged me to be much more open professionally about my identity even so Wire, as every organisation will do, struggles to get that right sometimes or to implement it at times. That's part of the process. So I think it's creating those opportunities to see yourself. We know that, I mean, it's good for business to be more inclusive in this fundamental ways. We know diversity improves results and staff satisfaction and consumer engagement. So business should be in balance with the world that it operates in and represent those diverse communities, not to mention, of course, to present to people like me opportunities to see themselves represented there. Because I was walking around for 30 plus years, not finding the words for my experience, because I never saw that represented in professional spheres and occasionally on TV and later life, but that was it. So I think it's finding those opportunities to actually present that. I mean, I know for me, some of those opportunities, I guess, and they're probably initially based around language. So I have, with your help, thank you, rewritten some of the information that's on my website about the programs that I run. I was going to say eagle-eyed. What's the equivalent of eagle-eyed for listening? Whatever. Whatever the equivalent is, close listeners, whatever the word might be. It's, it's more evolving language that we don't have yet. Yes. <laughs> whatever that might be, people listening to this today may have noticed that the intro and the outro has changed 
a little bit as well because it's now not just referring to women. It has always been about women and I'm, I'm changing that up as well just to be a little more inclusive. And I think in the conversations that we have in the Accelerator program, it's finding those opportunities. So I have previously included, for example, at the start, sometimes included the pronoun round, but not always this year. It's for all of the groups all of the time and encouraging that as well. So if it's finding those opportunities, and it's not always around language, like I've talked about people saying it in pronouns, people listening to it on the podcast, people reading it on the website, what are the other opportunities we should be looking out for on the boardrooms or even just in life? What are those other opportunities we should be looking out for to signal, or even more than signal, to show that we are inclusive? Well, I mean, I think you saying listening and the eagle-eyed listening, it seems intangible when you say it like that, but it's so important. Like everyone is telling us this. People who are systemically marginalised in many different communities in intersecting ways are already communicating what needs to be done. And so we absolutely have to listen to them. And, I mean, for me personally, I um, know that it's a privilege that comes with being more advanced in my career now. I have less to lose and more capacity to fight than I would have done if I had transitioned earlier in my career. And so I'm very aware of that for younger trans and gender diverse people who I work with and other marginalised groups. And when I say marginalised, they are systemically marginalised by the organisations that they're working within. So that's why I think it's important for me to speak out about my experience and to be an activist and an ally for my communities because I have the platform power and privilege to do so. However, there are trans, gender diverse people within all of the organisations that we're working with. And if you don't know that and you don't know who they are, then you have a cultural safety problem. So it's how you address that. And I'm cautious to say that the all the work and the emotional labour of this should not sit with your transgender diverse employees as it shouldn't for anyone who is experiencing that discrimination or disadvantage. But they are there and they are that you can still find spaces to listen to what they say in a constructive way. That's it. I mean, I think when I talk about this in broad terms, it can sound quite big shift thinking and revolutionary in its way, but I am absolutely a pragmatist and I wouldn't be doing this work if I wasn't seeing incremental change and really practical ways that you can do that in a boardroom setting for your organisations. As a quite a process-driven person myself, love a good policy and procedure to look at. And first of all, where are your policies and procedures that guide your organisation? Where are they creating barriers for people to participate. One of the most clear and obvious ones to me is in job applications and recruitment policies. Most job adverts will refer to needing a criminal record check, for example. But who are you discouraging from applying to do that? We absolutely need criminal record checks as a risk management procedure. I'm sure most people would agree for certain offences. But we also know that there's an overrepresentation of Aboriginal people and people of colour in the criminal justice system. We know that until 1997, homosexuality was still a crime in Tasmania. And that means people who are only 44 now were adults then and may have a criminal history because of that. Are you forcing people out that don't want to be? Are you forcing people to say things? So 
that's not to say don't have that policy, but be clear about why you have it and communicate that. Again, it comes back to language in your recruitment processes. Explain that we know that this creates a barrier for some people. And so this is why what we're trying to do to address that. However, there are certain financial crimes that you can't have to be on a board and various things that we need to consider. So being really clear about that. Oh, such a good point about it is often the tick box, isn't it, about criminal record check. And I I remember years ago being asked to do a criminal record check before being appointed to a role. It wasn't a board role. It was a CEO role. And saying to them, can I check why you're doing this? You know, for the record, I don't have anything, but I want to know why you're doing it. I'm a former union official. I know a number of union officials that may have criminal records because sometimes, you know, standing in the middle of the road or stopping trucks or whatever it may be leads to charges. And that's where the policies need to be backed by the process that really clearly says, so if we do discover, is it? I mean, I know that there are anti-discrimination laws in place and how they are applied may vary from organisation to organisation. But what happens when you find something that has no bearing on the role? It may be seen as a, a conservative view of it might be that it is a brand risk or reputational risk. But how are we really managing that and how does that balance with our goals if you have set that goal and that strategy to improve equity yeah and improve representation and improve inclusion absolutely yeah so and maybe these things go together but I'm wondering that is some really great advice around the language and policies and processes to communicate clearly around things like police checks and there will be a whole range of others what other kind of governance systems or processes might need to be looked at or reviewed to ensure that intersectional inclusion? I think from a board perspective, your skills matrix is always a great place to start. Are you considering diversity of knowledge and experience as a skill? They're probably... Most skills matrix already have something around diversity, around race, age, gender, sexuality, potentially on the board, but is it enough for what you're trying to do? And like anything, this has to come back to the strategy of what you're trying to achieve. But having diversity on your board of board directors of different ages, different races, and so on, doesn't mean you necessarily have diversity of experience. And so I think there's a lot more talk, certainly in the for-purpose sector, about lived experience, quote-unquote, now. But I think there's that conflation between board diversity and lived experience. So what I mean by that lived experience is, do you have people who bring expert knowledge from first-hand experience on issues where you're trying to improve representation and inclusion? Plus... Are they equipped to contextualise that knowledge into the governance structures and the external environment that you're working in? Plus, do they have the skills and capacity to represent people with similar lived experience? And importantly, do they have the support structures in place to prevent any vicarious trauma and protect their own well-being when bringing these personal experiences into a professional context And all of that is the responsibility of you as a board to put in place so you can increase diversity and representation. So, yes, you need those to identify what they are on the skills matrix, but you need that support structure in place for people who are stepping into those roles as well. 
So I'm interested in this uh, line, for want of a better word. In my head, I actually put lived experience in a slightly different box, not that that's nice neat boxes next to each other, but a slightly different box to diversity in the boardroom. Because I think all boards need diversity because, as you said before, all of the evidence is diverse groups make better decisions. We need that diversity in all ways, shapes and form, you know, from experience, from our own kind of characteristics that we might be born with and so on. So we need that mix. And sometimes that intersects with lived experience, but I'm not sure it has to intersect with lived experience in terms of bringing that lived experience to the boardroom. I absolutely agree, yes, because I think they are distinct, but they can be overlapping and intersecting. So for my experience, for example, we can be more than one thing at once. We all are. I am a white, non-binary person, and I am both those things at once, and I'm both of those things separately. And I bring that viewpoint to the board, and I bring my lived experience, I guess, to the board, but am I bringing that in a structured way that I am there to say, well, as a non-binary person and from my understanding of that I'm bringing from the broader community structures for trans, gender diverse people, am I bringing that voice to the board or am I there because I have a not-for-profit governance background in policy, advocacy, CEO of similar organisations? Am I bringing that first and foremost? And the reality is we're all bringing all of it all the time. But that's where I think the lived experience piece needs to be a dedicated role so that that becomes the priority of that thinking and you're really looking at that. So if you are an organisation that has said gender equity is the number one area that we want to improve, for example, within our organisation, well, then, yes, you need diverse representation of gender diverse people, women, men on the board to be able to do that. And I would say dedicated roles to try and achieve that. Just because you have a non-binary person who is a treasurer, for example, if they are there not because of the fact that they're non-binary or you have a woman as a treasurer, whatever it is, or a person of colour, someone that is bringing different skills for different reasons. And so I think This is where we have to find that balance between, yes, we absolutely need that diversity of people and experiences, professional experiences. But so many of the systems and structures that we're using, so the matrix that have developed, have come from very traditional standards of governance that were really, let's face it, designed by white men that were about skills experience and diversity of skills in professional training, which you've got your legal hats on and your financial hat on and then so on. So it's finding that other layer to that as well. Totally. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, ensuring that the skills matrices that we use represent that full diversity and it's a skill in and of itself as well. So I just want to nip back to the conversation we started before about language and how important it is. And I guess call myself out here because whilst I updated the website and I've updated the intro outro... (laughs) far from perfect. Indeed, in one of the sessions that we had, I misgendered you. It was at a time when you were having difficulties connecting to the session. So I wasn't sure if you were there or not. As soon as the words came out of my mouth, I had a little panic and I didn't know what to do. And I just charged on. And then afterwards, we had an email conversation and you gave me some excellent advice about perhaps what I could have done better. (laughs) 
<laughs> so can you share that? Because I have since then written it down on a little post-it note so that I've got it in front of me about what to do next time because I just went into a bit of a blind panic. So maybe if you can share so others don't have to go into blind panic like I did. Firstly, Helia, you are human like us all and we will all make errors. And I think it's so important to remember how language is evolving. And I think the biggest barrier people have is fear of doing things wrong, fear of causing harm. But if you're trying, people know, like people know that you're trying, people know what your intention is. And that's the main thing. All you can do is if you, if you make a mistake, whether that's misgendering someone, referring to a dead name, whatever it might be, when you catch yourself, you say sorry, and you correct yourself, and you continue. Because you don't want to make it a bigger deal for that individual who is then highlighted in that conversation in a way that they may not want to be, but you learn from it and you move on. And like anything, we can write prompts, we can find the ways that we learn things ourselves. but it is a process of learning and unlearning. And we are so integrated into this, just because I'm a non-binary person does not mean I'm not going to misgender someone sometimes because I was raised in this very binary system and I am more acutely aware of it and will probably try harder, but it can happen. So I think it's being forgiving of yourself when that happens. But I think the bigger issue is when out of fear, people don't say anything. And so if you hear someone being misgendered, you don't call it out. What that says to that person or others in the room who are not yet open about their experience or comfortable to do so you're saying it's not a safe space because no one is standing up to be that ally. And so I think that's what's really most important is being able to continue to do that. It's the act of trying and we will only improve by keeping on trying. You are very generous. Thank you. <laughs> and what I've since taken from that, and I, I, I've no doubt I'll mess things up again in the future, but calling others out as well, that that's not your, absolutely not your job. And if I think about the group, and I think I said this to you in the first meeting, I know that my role as the facilitator of that group is to create an inclusive space. It is not your role. Having said that, your advice in some of this is gold. So it is much appreciated, which is why I wanted to do this as well, because I've benefited from your advice and I want others to benefit from it as well. Well, I appreciate that. And I think, but creating these platforms to do this is a really important part of that too. And as I say, I am comfortable talking about my experience because of where I am professionally, personally, to be able to do that and have it. And I consider it a privilege and, and a responsibility to people who are the next generations of people that are experiencing um, this. So I find that important. And for me, it's not my style to necessarily always take an adversarial approach to it because I don't think that's necessarily what's going to lead to the most change. And I, I'm a big believer in that change comes from within. And so if organisations are trying to change something externally, then you need to change what that looks like on your own internally and that's like really those step-by-step -step processes that you can take and it does start with the individual if you have got a group of individuals who are closed off to making those changes well then the organization isn't going to make that change so a moment ago when I was asking you about that language you said misgendering somebody and you said or dead naming them can you just tell us what that is dead naming is referring to someone by a previous name 
the name they were probably given at birth and that no longer serves them. I would say using that name or even just asking questions. You may be aware that someone's changed their name or you might just be curious and say, what were you called before or something like that. All you're asking to do is that person to point out mistakes that their parents made when they got their gender wrong. And it's the past. It's not that person is telling you who they are by presenting their name, their pronouns, the information they want to share. That's the only thing that matters. We can do that when you know someone before and after or through the process of their transition. And I'm cautious as I'm using, see, language is so important, that using the language of transition to explain it now, I find that language problematic myself in that for other people, there was a transition of me, genders and changing name. For me, it wasn't a transition. This is always who I have always been but that's not how I was known. So I think that's something really important to remember that I have always been a non-binary person, but the world around me got that wrong and I was trying to fit into a different box. So I think it's really important to say, I mean, dead name, not everyone likes that term because it's quite a strong term, but it's the most common term used for referring to people by their previous name. So Red, <laughs> this is my my kind of all-encompassing rap in a way, but uh, what should I have asked you about this that I haven't? I think when you're coming to do this work, coming to step into being an ally individually, organisationally, you absolutely have to ask in that process what are the risks of further harm that you are causing. And I think that's asking that of yourself, of other people, to be able to step through a process of making sure that you are actually doing it for the right reasons and the right intentions. So are you asking people questions because you're curious or is this actually about going to make some real change? For you and I, Helia, approaching this was a slightly different dynamic in, you know, that I approached you around some of it. And I think you have very much approached this in the spirit of learning and willingness to hear constructive feedback or things that you things that could be different. And I was happy to volunteer that. What I think is important, so is not everyone will be, and it's not everyone's job. I am an activist at heart from first career and just who I am and keen to make those changes and see that change in the world and find opportunities like the board accelerator that I wouldn't have felt comfortable participating in previously or being able to refer colleagues who are earlier in their career to who say I want more governance training I want more board experience where do I go and not knowing where that safer space is so for me this is an important part of to ask the questions, though, I think I'm going to come back to my point around breaking down all the binaries. I think it's really important to remember that you're looking at all the intersecting ways that people can experience discrimination and disadvantage. And if we are boxing things off, you're going to leave someone out. So there's absolutely, in the boardroom as a whole, the place for dedicated initiatives to achieve equity goals, your reconciliation action plans, your disability inclusion plans, gender equity plans, and so on. But we need to look at this holistically as well from this intersectional approach, because 
you can have multiple governance frameworks to address inequality and you can do multiple pieces of work like you have been doing with me around trans and gender diverse inclusion in the program. But most often those frameworks or pieces of work erase the experiences of people who experience all those things of race, gender, sexuality, disability. So all of that, when you box that off, so, for example, if we talk about achieving gender equality for trans and gender diverse people, your interventions have to consider racial discrimination. In fact, if they're not actively anti-racist, they're not trans inclusive because you are excluding people. And that comes back to the very founding of intersectionality work coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, which was around gender discrimination and racial discrimination in the law and how those things had limitations in being seen when they overlapped. Practically, your work to improve gender equity isn't going to reach the goals that it could if it's not considering that overlapping lens. So to your question, it's probably less about what you could have asked or could have said differently. But I think taking that step back and taking that broader view of how do all of these pieces fit together? Because when they do all fit together, those are the communities who are most often excluded from those individual pieces of work otherwise. So, yeah, looking looking at that more holistic and intersectional view. Mm. So this is one piece of the pie, it's not the pie, and it fits in with all of the other pieces. And Absolutely. It doesn't stay in its nice, neat little slice of pie. They all beautifully, hopefully, merge together into that inclusive space. Oh, Red, thank you. What are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? If you're not taking an intersectional approach to inclusion, you are leaving someone out. That work has to be actively anti-racist, as I said. It needs to be considering of the power structures and where they collide, where they intersect to lead to opportunities for people to face further barriers, further hurdles that cause systemic discrimination and disadvantage. So looking from all of those lenses and more fundamentally, when we started this talking about gender equity, as you were saying, it's this is never going to be a 50-50. It's a, not a binary. That's not who we are in the world that we live in. So we absolutely need to take that broader approach. I would say that I've, we've talked about some really huge theoretical and societal issues, but there are practical incremental steps that anyone as an individual can take or any board can take. I mean, boards, we review our policies pretty regularly. That is always an opportunity to start making change. You can do that in a step-by-step way. In fact, I think it's the only way forward to do it in incremental bite-sized chunks. Is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Your biggest resource are the people around you that are in your company, in your workplace, who are living this on a day-to-day basis. And as I've said, it is absolutely not their problem and it shouldn't be their emotional labour to do this work for you, but create spaces to listen to them. And there are so many other people out there in talking about this and particularly transgender diverse people that are are creating change in their own worlds and their own navigation of this people online on Instagram and the others some of the big so various people out there you will find them so I would say that's your first step 
But if you're looking for more practical tools, one that springs to mind is the Victorian Commission for Gender Equality in the Public Sector released something around a year ago, a guidance document on applying intersectionality to gender equality action plans, which is a useful tool as a first step of, um, and a good place to start. But there are also so many other LGBTIQA plus specific organisations that are working in this. Speak Australia, which I chair, works especially in regional communities doing training for workplaces and schools around inclusion. Minus 18 have a wealth of resources as well. So I would say speak to people, find the people and be clear on what you want to do and get their advice. And then there are a connection, whether it's individuals or organisations, there are many resources out there for you to support your work. And I'm here. I am happy to talk to people too. That's part of what I'm doing by being here with you today, Helia, but more than happy, happy to speak to people and help organisations on that journey. Oh, excellent. Well, we'll make sure we put your contact details and website and so on in the show notes as well, as well as digging out some of those other ones that you've just listed off there. Oh, Red, thank you. Thank you for your generosity in all of the conversations that we've had in providing that constructive feedback to me, which I have appreciated greatly, and for sharing your wisdom with the Take On Board community today. I really appreciate it and I have no doubt others will as well. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Helia, and thank you for all of your willingness to be open to change and open to learning because that's where all of this work starts. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women and gender diverse people together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd also really love it if you could do some of the other, well, podcast things. Share the podcast with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.